Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I will be discussing murders from the year 2000 through 2009. Today's story is of a female murderer from 2002. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to the year 2002. The most popular movie in 2002 was Spider-Man, the original and best version, in my opinion. It reached 39.4 million its opening day. American Idol had its premiere season in 2002, with Kelly Clarkson being the first winner of the competition. Another thing that happened in 2002 was a silver S-Class 430 Mercedes-Benz turning into a murder weapon. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. On July 24, 2002, Claire Harris and her stepdaughter Lindsay were waiting in the lobby of the Nassau Bay Hilton Hotel when the elevator doors opened to reveal her husband, David Harris, and his mistress, Gail Bridges. Claire flipped out and lunged at Gail, yelling, He's my husband! While Lindsay went after her dad with her purse, shouting, I hate you! over and over again. Hotel employees attempted to intervene, but Claire was crazy with rage, grabbing at Gail's shirt and ripped it. Then, according to one witness, David put his hand on his wife's head, pushed her to the floor, and with help from a hotel employee, they quickly escorted Gail out to her car in one of the many hotel parking lots. The employees then removed Claire and Lindsay from the hotel in another lot and told them not to approach David and Gail. They got into her Mercedes-Benz and started to leave when Claire saw David and Gail standing outside her Lincoln Navigator. Claire pushed down on the gas with her rage building and skimmed the Navigator with her Mercedes and ended up hitting her husband in the process, sending him 25 feet across the parking lot. Then Claire decided to steer her car toward her husband and drove over him, circling the parking lot, running over him, not once, not twice, but three times. Claire Harris was born in Bogota, Colombia, and was raised by her widowed mother. She was determined to make a good living for herself, so she studied dentistry in Colombia before coming to America for further training in the 80s. She completed her residency at the University of Texas, Houston Dental Branch. David also graduated second in his class from the same university, but they didn't meet until in their 30s in 1991 when they were both working at Castle Dental Center in Houston. I remember David calling soon after he had met Claire and telling me he was completely smitten, his father Gerald later stated. They were married less than a year later on Valentine's Day, 1992. 
with the reception being held at the Nassau Bay Hilton Hotel. In 1993, Clara opened her own dental practice and was quoted in a local newspaper. I found the best. I found the one God has reserved for me. And hang pictures of the two of them all over her office. David also had his own practice, Space Center Orthodontics. In 1998, Clara gave birth to healthy twin sons, and she also had a great relationship with David's daughter, Lindsay, who lived with them in the summers and spent the school year with her mother in Ohio. They were a power couple, with their practices both thriving, and so they ended up acquiring seven other dental practices in the area and put together a management team to staff and supervise them. By 2001, David's income was skyrocketing, he was clearing as much as 35000 a month just from Space Center Orthodontics alone. They lived a wealthy lifestyle, and although they had many luxuries, the only extravagance in life Claire said she cared about was owning a Mercedes. For her, the car was a shining symbol of all that she had been able to accomplish. Other than that, her focus was on her family. Claire made it a point to be home every day to cook dinner, and countless friends and co-workers expressed how in love Claire was with her husband. One co-worker actually stating, I used to tell people that I wish I couldn't be able to love my husband in the same way that Clara loved David. Everything seemed idyllic for the couple until January 2001, when Gail Bridges was hired as a receptionist at David's office. When Gail met David, she had been divorced for two years and needed to start supporting herself. She had been in an ugly divorce with her ex, Stephen, who had accused her of being in a lesbian relationship with her best friend, Julie Knight, who was married to Chuck Knight. Chuck also brought up these allegations during his divorce to Julie. Now, the reason I am bringing this information up is because it comes up later with the media using the lesbian allegations to give the hair saga an irresistibly salacious new twist. In reality, the husbands wanted to use the lesbian tactic to force their wives into agreeing to out-of-court settlements that would leave them with less than their fair share of the community property. Julie and Gail were just best friends, and acting as best friends. It took a private investigator, whom I will also bring up later in the story, to explain to Mr. Knight, You do know that women are different than men, asked the P.I., even if two women kiss or hug, it doesn't mean they are sexually active with one another. Not at all. There's more information about this side story, but not all relevant to our current case, so I will digress. I would like to introduce you to the Decorum Group, an event and seasonal decorating company based out of San Antonio, Texas. They bring the etiquette of design to your events and decor. Celebrations and holidays have a way of bringing people together. The Decorum Group brings the pieces together to cultivate a unique experience for every occasion. You can gather more information on all the social media platforms or at thedecorumgroup.com. After Gail was hired, David Harris was seen lingering around the reception desk a lot more in the early months of 2002. 
and by late February, he had secretly asked Gail to lunch. By April or May, they were intimate, and they began meeting at the Nassau Bay Hilton. Yes, the same Nassau Bill Hilton his wedding reception was held out in 1992 with Clara. From Gail's point of view, this was going to be a successful relationship. Telling friends that David had confided to her that he was staying in his marriage only for his business and the children. Then she told them that David had said he loved her. But no one from David's circle believed that the orthodontist was really in love with her. If anything, he was infatuated with her for a while, nothing more, said a close friend. He was never going to leave his wife. And around Space Center Orthodontics, you couldn't find anyone who didn't think that Gail saw David as her ticket back to the lifestyle to which she was once accustomed. For this reason, a woman who worked at the dental office, Diana, informed Clara of the affair. But Clara couldn't believe what she was hearing. I thought, she was trying to destroy my marriage, Clara said. Still in denial, she decided to talk to her husband. But David admitted that he had been seeing his receptionist, Gail. He insisted that he had done no more than kiss her hand, and he declared that he would do anything to save their marriage. Claire said, Okay, but I want you to fire her today. I want us to go to marriage counseling. I want you to tell your parents. And I want you to tell the pastor. This admission was on July 17, 2002. After their discussion, Claire went downstairs, angry and confused. Her stepdaughter, Lindsay, was there, and Claire said, there's something you need to know about your dad. But Lindsay looked at her and stated, I know already. All the girls in the office know. She told me, David and Gail go for lunch every day. According to an article in Texas Monthly, those who saw Claire said she looked ravaged in the days after learning about the affair. Claire said she was crestfallen when her husband told her she didn't measure up to his mistress. She quit eating and lost 10 pounds. She walked into the office of a plastic surgeon and made a 5,000 down payment on a liposuction procedure and breast implants. She hired a personal trainer and started going to a tanning salon. She also decided to sacrifice her career. I called the office and I told them, I am retiring today. You're never going to see me again. I'm going to dedicate myself to my family. In fact, by the start of that next week, David and Claire had sat down with his parents and his teenage daughter, Lindsay, and told them about the affair. David asked for their forgiveness. It really was a time when healing had begun, David's father stated. As part of that healing, David told Claire he was going to break it off with Gail. Claire asked him to call her and end the relationship over the phone, but he said he wanted to do it in person. Claire didn't like the idea, but agreed to David's meeting Gail at a local restaurant so they could get closure and move on. But leading up to this breakup dinner, Claire started getting nervous, so she decided to hire a private investigator to go and keep an eye on David and Gail during this dinner. 
Claire found an ad that stated, Need a clue? Call Blue. It was a private investigating firm called Blue Moon Investigations and owned by Bobby Bacha. This was the same PI hired to follow Gail and her best friend months before. Claire called on July 23, 2002, saying she needed someone to follow her husband the next night. She explained that he was going to meet his mistress at Perry's restaurant and that she wanted the investigator to get close enough to overhear what he said. Bobby assigned the case to one of her part-time investigators, Lindsay Dubeck, who the next day jumped in her car and drove over to David's office to tail him. Expecting to follow David to Perry's restaurant, she was surprised when he turned into the Hilton Hotel and met with Gail in the hotel restaurant. Later, they went up to a room. Lindsay got back in her car to wait until they came back out. It was a habit for them to videotape the people they were tailing, so she had her camera at the ready and called a friend to bring some fast food and to hang out as it was expected to be a long stakeout. During this time, Claire was on edge and couldn't just sit there, so she convinced her stepdaughter to go out looking for David with her. They drove to Perry's, walked inside, and couldn't find him. So they went to another restaurant David said he sometimes had taken Gail, and then went to Gail's house with no luck. After this, she finally decided to call Blue Moon and was told that Lindsay was waiting outside a hotel where her husband was with the other woman. Claire knew exactly what hotel that would be. next section, I'm going to play parts of Claire's testimony, what she did to Gail's car before they went into the hotel, and her account of what occurred after they left. Clara and Lindsay spotted Gail's navigator as soon as they pulled into the lot. Clara, extremely frustrated, drove right up to Gail's car. The rear window, windshield wiper, and I bend it many times. And then I'm Bend the ones in the front, and then I scratch her car with my nails. And uh, um, Lindsay gave me a key, so I scratched her car quite a bit, I'm sure. Before parking in another area on the lot. Then they walked up to the front desk of the Hilton and asked for the room of David Harris. An employee said that no Harris was listed. So Claire came up with an idea. Both she and Lindsay called David from their cell phones and told him that one of the twins was sick and begged him to come home. David told both that he and Gail were at Papado's and that he was on his way home. A few minutes later, the elevator doors opened and out walked David and Gail, hand in hand. He was holding her hand up like he used to hold my hand many times when he would call me there. I was his princess and his sweetheart in a you know, very special manner. And I just looked at her. She wasn't even surprised to see me. I grabbed her by her hair on the right side. And I remember David saying, Oh, no, no, no. 
And suddenly all I thought was what that man said, don't go where they're going. So I thought, so they're going together in her car? And so all I thought was stopping that car. And I started driving toward where I had seen her car. And then I saw David running in front of me to the left, and I kept looking at him. I thought my car was going to stop right there in that sidewalk that seemed to be quite high. But my car kept going, and at the moment, I didn't know who was. A little hard to understand at times through her tears, but Claire was explaining that she was heartbroken when she heard the hotel employee say David and Gail were going to leave together. And the only thing going through her mind was, I have to stop that car. After Claire ran over her husband three times, her stepdaughter, who had been sitting in the passenger seat and had to hear the horrifying thump of the Mercedes running over her dad, jumped out as soon as the car stopped, ran over to the driver's side and punched Claire in the face. She then crumbled to the ground, sobbing. According to witnesses, when Claire got out of the car, she didn't seem to know what to do. She finally walked over to her husband. She stared at him. And then, she too began to sob. Before the police arrived to arrest her for murder, she cradled David in her arms and begged him to breathe. I'm so sorry, she was heard saying over and over. David, I'm so sorry. I love you. And on top of all of this, the whole thing was caught on tape by the very P.I. Claire hired the day earlier. Claire was let out on a $30,000 bond and went into seclusion until her trial, which was to start in February 2003. The media went crazy over this story, with headlines such as Driller Killer and Mad Wife at Wheel, and television morning shows interviewed anyone who ever knew Claire Harris. But Claire wasn't the only one who went into hiding at this time. Gail became infamous in their town, with the lesbian rumors resurfacing and the story being made worse when the media found a segment of Gail and her best friend Julie appearing on a segment of the Sally Jesse Raphael show in 2001. Wearing wigs and dark glasses, they talked about their former husband's attempts to portray them as lesbians. Soon, video cassette tapes of the episode, which had been titled, My Husband Spies on Me, were in the hands of most Houston media outlets, and sound bites were being played on the local news shows. A photo of Gail and her wig was run in the Houston Chronicle, and the New York Post proclaimed, Bisexual triangle led to car slay of hubby in an article. As Gail became an outcast in the suburbs, Clara was actually getting supporters. Local radio talk shows were jammed with callers saying that Clara should not be severely punished for what she had done. More than one caller suggested that David had signed his own death warrant the moment he left the Hilton with Gail instead of with his wife and daughter. In the letters to the editor section of the Houston Chronicle, 
One writer blamed the entire fiasco on the other woman, Gail Bridges, for wanting to carry on an extramarital affair with David. Others blamed David for choosing to stray. Another wrote, Claire Harris had simply acted out the fantasy of every woman who learns her husband is having an affair. And a saying also emerged during this time. I'm thinking about pulling a Claire Harris, said to husbands when they did stupid things. With all this craziness going on, the defense decided to have a mock jury before trial began. A mock jury is a type of group research that allows lawyers to evaluate the potential reactions of jurors to their evidence and arguments before a case goes to trial. This is a recording of part of that mock jury research group. Trials, as much as we'd like to think that they're a search for the truth, for many people they're not. For many people a trial is what are the facts that substantiate or support the opinion I have. Who has come into the courtroom thinking that uh, Dr. Harris was guilty based on the media? It's okay. Most likely, just based on the media. Okay, Joy. And I first heard on the media that she had run over him multiple times and the car was on top of the body. I thought to myself, yeah, she intentionally did it. Um, it might be a small thing, but the way she comes out, even before she opens her mouth, she has that, that Leona Hemsley look. Mm. Her type of dress, that much makeup, just... Yeah, so we need to work with her in terms of softening her up. Mm -hmm. I want you to talk to me about whether or not this is a case of murder, or is this just a case of passion? I mean, tell me what this case is about. I'm, I'm having a problem with, with her testimony because she's not really admitting that she really went there to confront them, you know, and it, it makes her not be very believable that she's not admitting that. So Claire's got to acknowledge that. She's got to be able to suck it up and, and say, I made a mistake. Pamela, what, was, what were your words that you used? Yeah. Snap. She hit the car and she wants to just really get it, get it by hitting this car. And it was an accident. Criminally negligent homicide? Okay. Her attorney, George Farnham, was also famous of sorts. As the year prior, he was the attorney for Andrea Yates, the mother who drowned her five children in a bathtub. In that case, Farnham used an insanity defense, but in Claire's case, he was going with a sudden passion defense. This would be a tough defense to explain, as the videotape of Claire continually running over her husband would be shown to the jurors. Will the defense be able to make this argument work? Or will Claire Harris be convicted for murdering her husband? Find out next week in Claire Harris, part two. I want to say a huge thank you to Texas Monthly, Murderpedia, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I will put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when we discuss the second part of this crazy case from 2002. If you are enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button. 
And if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at crimesofadecadepod and on Twitter at crimesofadecade.com.